and we're back with a brand new episode of some bases covered before we get into it today i have a message from our sponsorship station when it comes to running online businesses your shipment department is not the place to start cutting corners that's why we put the woodcarver enterprise in charge and when it comes to saving money as a small business owner every little bit helps so worry less about the bottom line when you're saving money with the woodcarver enterprise Go to thewoodcarver.com and use the promo code SOMEBASISCOVERED and sign up for a free 60-day trial. Thewoodcarver.com, promo code SOMEBASISCOVERED, and sign up today. Thanks, guys. Let's get back into the podcast. Hello, this is Stone G with Mind the Autism Podcast, and today we are blessed and fortunate to be with a psychologist, therapist, hypnotherapist, and I'm just going to call you Dr. Eiling, and share <laughs> share a little bit about your journey, because I know that um, one, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have this conversation with you is because you are also neurodiverse. And as a clinician, you not only have the academic part of it, you have the science, uh, you also have the lived experience. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your your journey and please share within it everyone your background. All right, thank you for welcoming me. So nice to meet you like all over the other end of the world. I'm sitting here in uh, rainy Amsterdam today. It's uh, afternoon here. So yeah, I'm based in Amsterdam and um, I'm currently uh, finishing my uh, study for integrative psychotherapy and hypnosis. And I love to work with people and especially with neurodiverse people. Um, I found out along the way that, that I am neurodiverse myself. I have autism and ADHD, which gives challenges of its own. But I, I really like to help people with the same struggles that, that I experience. So that's, mm. uh, that's in a nutshell, a bit about me. You, well, you, you, bring, you bring up something interesting uh, because there's your lived experience and then there is uh, your academic experience. And still, even though you have the science where you understand what's going on, you're, you're still describing these struggles with mm -hmm. neurodiversity. And, and I wonder if you could share maybe some specific examples of challenges that you had and maybe finish off, land the plane with um, what you did to resolve. Sure. So what I experienced myself is uh, mostly sensory uh, issues, challenges. Uh, I'm very sensitive to lights and noises. So when I get out into the world, out of my house, my safe zone, it comes in like in stereo, like really loud. And so I wear headsets, like everywhere I go, I'm always wearing earplugs. And if I don't do that, the world comes in too big and too loud for me and it gives me anxiety. Um, so that's, that's what I notice a lot. Like when there's too many people, crowded places, and there's too many conversations going on or, or sounds. Like I pick up all the sounds, they're not filtered. Uh, so then it's sometimes hard to focus. If I'm speaking to someone and there's something else going on and then I hear a siren or I see a bird, you know, it's all over the place. So that's, that's mainly what I experienced in the outside world. And another thing I experience is um, executive functioning uh, that's affected with me. I noticed that with, for example, uh, planning, keeping track of time, 
I have uh, yeah, time, time blindness, they call it. So to me, time doesn't really exist. And I struggle to live in the world with time and keep track of everything. So even, even though I know I have an appointment or I need to go to school and I take all the time in advance and I put many alarms, I still struggle in the end to make it out of the door in time. So it's, it's always, you know, like I'm running after the facts and I, I need to make sure that, that I arrive somewhere in time. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing that you have these challenges and you also want to support other people with these same challenges. And it sounds to me that you've, you've organized some type of uh, structure, strategy to address that. You said with the noise and light, so you, when you're at home, maybe you don't have the lights on as much and you wear earplugs everywhere you go. And what have you done with uh, executive function to, to shore that up? Yeah, that's, that's still one of the main points I struggle with because it's so invasive so to speak. So I really have to put effort into it. For example, I use my, my timer on my phone a lot. If, if I have to prepare something for school or study or client sessions, I really have to sit down and use a timer. And I prefer to work in time slots. So for example, I set it for 40 minutes and then I take a small break. And it works really well for me to have these in intermittent working sections and then a small reward because that works really well with my brain to keep me motivated. I believe there's apps for it as well. Like what's the name again? Perhaps you know the one like tomato sure. or something, something yeah, like there's, that. There's two others. One is called Sensa, which is pretty good. And, and another one called motion. Those are seem to be the, the most popular ones. Well, I'm, I'm also curious about I want to shift the conversation a little bit and maybe if we could just look at autism itself. I know for my, for me, when my doctor suggested that I'm autistic, I had heard of it, but I didn't know what it was. And maybe you can share from as a clinician, if you could share from a clinical perspective, what is autism? That's a really good question <laughs> because autism is hard to, to put in one box, you know, because it's, it's so diverse and it's, they call it a spectrum and it plays out differently for every single individual. So you can have one person with autism and another one and they're, they can be completely different in their expressions. So how I would describe it is that it's a neurological condition. It's something that's actually in the brain and in the nervous system. And these people are much more sensitive and these sensitivities play out in different realms. So one person struggles more with like the, the sensory effect or with the tactile effects that they don't like touch or hugs. Another person struggles really badly with, with executive functioning, uh, with anxiety, with depression. So it's hard to, to capture it under one um, explanation. It's very complex and that makes it really interesting. Um, so I think it's it's important to look at every person as an individual and see how their sensitivities play out. And there's an interesting concept of a psychologist, Dr. Dabrowski. Have you heard of him? Uh, not as of yet. Okay, so what he did at the time, he, he developed a concept and he called it overexcitabilities. And it sounds very similar to autism. And what he did is measure specific realms where the sensitivity can play out. And for example, you have it in the, the motor realm, 
Like a lot of people struggle with their movements, with their coordination, with balance, dropping things. Um, and then there's the, the sensory realm, like, like with all the senses, the data that comes in. And on, in all these realms, people with autism are much more sensitive than neurotypicals. Mm. So I mm. like to see it that way, and in, a, in the through the lens of overexcitabilities and, and sensitivities. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, just for for our listeners, I'll, I'll let me see if I can distill all that because that's that's you know as you it's said, it's, it's it's broad, <laughs> and one of the challenges is is that sometimes, in particular, neurotypical people or people who are who are engaged in ableism will say autism is X or autism is Y, and it isn't a monolith. It's not just this one, it's it's quite broad, but let's let's try to encapsulate it. The way I usually encapsulate it for my clients is that it is a difference in neurology from the way neurotypical people might relate to the world. And one of the one of the common elements with, with autism is that our senses tend to be 40% more active than neurotypical people. So we feel a lot more. That's one one way of of describing it. And I think that that would would you say that's fair? That's a fair way of of uh, uh, encapsulating what you shared? Definitely. I like how you actually gave like a, a fact or a number with it. That works well with people with autism to have a clear logical or scientific cue, like 40% more sensory intensity or input. I like that. Mm. And I also heard the term intense worldview one time. I read it somewhere or I heard it. I think that also is a nice way to put it, that everything comes in more intense and is experienced more intense. My, with regarding my lived experience, I always knew that I was different and I didn't quite know why. I thought it was because I'm a beautiful chocolate man, or maybe it was, oh, because I'm so tall or these, but it was none of those. I, I, you know, I'm being tongue in cheek with that. Um, but we know, we know, and there are a few, uh, there's some peer reviewed uh, literature that has demonstrated that neurotypical people tend to be marginalized immediately. There was a study where they took several neurotypical people and they took one neurodiverse person and without fail, all of the neurotypical people marginalize the neurodiverse person. Then they reverse the study and the neurodiverse, so it was a group of neurodiverse people and a neurotypical person and the neurotypical person self-selected out, whereas the neurodiverse people, they were fine. They were interacting, they were communicating. They So there's a myth that uh, neurodiverse people have an issue with communication. No, we don't have an issue with communication. We have an issue with trauma and the marginalization that happens with uh, neurotypical people marginalizing us or excluding us because we're different. We communicate differently, we interact differently. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm curious about some of your experiences in academia, uh, especially once you became aware of your, of your neurodiversity and working in or training in this type of area. Mm -hmm, sure. So, um, like you said, like when I was younger, I already noticed there was something different about me, but I couldn't really pinpoint it. I just thought I was weird or, you know, 
there was something different about me. Um, so I really noticed it at, at high school and college. Uh, and I felt a bit lost there. And I was still very introverted and I struggled with, you know, social activities. I was a bit of a, a loner. I didn't have that many friends. I got bullied. And when I started the current academia, the psychology and the uh, integrative therapy and hypnotherapy, I entered a different environment because what is interesting about this study is that it's a bit um, out of the box. It's so for some reason, a lot of neurodivergent people pick this study. So I entered class and environment with people like me. And at first I didn't realize it, but I started to recognize it more and more. Because in the beginning, I had no clues yet that I was neurodivergent until I um, had sessions with a therapist. And in the, in the very first session, he mentioned, Ella, I believe you're on the autism spectrum. And I got mad because I was like, this is not possible. Like, I didn't believe it. And it took me a while to actually adjust to cons even considering that, that diagnosis. And the funny thing is that, you know, once I started to acclimatize and, and you know, mentally adjust to, to that big change of, of perception and of acknowledging this, I started to look back at my life and I could recognize all these things. And suddenly, you know, once, once you open up to that, the idea starts to get alive and I started to accept it more and more. And I, I read a lot about it online and I started to, you know, get more knowledgeable on it and map it to my own experiences. And what I realized then, what I find really remarkable is that once you accept it yourself and you uh, get to know yourself better and your autistic traits and you're able to see, ah, you know, this is going on, then you're able to recognize it in others. So once I got my, well, it was an unofficial diagnose, um, but since then I started to see it around me like, Hey, you know, and I also saw in my network that a lot of people in my network that I hang out with are neurodivergent, you know, it's like mm. it, energetically we navigate towards each other. Yeah. Birds, birds of a feather, uh, flock together. That's, I, I that's was, the same, yeah. <laughs> I, I was uh, I was smiling because next term I I start psych, I, so I'm doing a, a, a dual degree next next term, and I start uh, psychology and the uh, head lecturer is also autistic, and when I'm interacting with other other autistic people, I would say more than fifty percent of them have an interest in psychology. Um, and or they're studying it or they are a psychologist and when I look at my own lived experience I am a neuro-linguistic programmer uh, a master therapist uh, uh, I'm I'm a counselor uh, a hypnotherapist so there are all these and a coach and there are all these modalities that I've participated in and become qualified in and developed uh, competence and mastery in over my life because I thought there was something wrong with me I was trying to fix myself and come to find out there was there was nothing wrong and I believe that that is usually just like you were you were expressing that there's there's a similar there's a similar journey that we that we experience mm -hmm. definitely yeah it's true what you're saying that people that navigate towards psychology that have a big interest in it 
are people that you know want to find out something about themselves either they think like oh there's something wrong with me i need to fix something or you know there's always this reason that you know next to helping people they also want to help themselves and and figure out what's going on there right what what would you say let's let's uh let's take a hypothetical let's say you have a client who is coming to you and they're newly diagnosed. Maybe they got a diagnosis within the past 12 months. And let's say you have, again, this is hypothetical. And let's say you have another client who has come to you and they were diagnosed maybe 15 years ago. What do you think are gonna be some of the differences in the way they present? Or what do you think are going to be some of the, uh, the issues that they're that they're negotiating so for a newly diagnosed person or a person exploring the possibility of being autistic um that's a whole process and next to acceptance it's also a kind of grieving process because their entire world suddenly changes and and you know yeah you're gonna backtrack and look back on your life and suddenly things start to make sense like, oh, you know, now I understand why this and this happened or why this didn't happen or why so why I struggled so badly. So there's a lot of realizations that people have to digest. So it takes some time and they have to like get to know themselves all over again, basically, because there's masking involved and suddenly it's like, oh, what, what part is me and what part was masked? So this can go hand in hand with like the grieving process or depression even to to adjust to that new um, information and that new perception suddenly because you're going to look at yourself in a completely different way. So these people need more guidance in their journey, how they um, can deal with that best. And um, what I also see is with people newly diagnosed that they're not so aware yet about the emotional realm and how to actually put that put language to it so i work a lot with metaphors with those clients whereas people that are further ahead in their journey they they reach that acceptance they accept themselves as they are you know and they they know that there was never anything wrong with them and they went through their their whole process of acceptance and perhaps grieving or whatever changes they go through and they also start to learn more and um, express themselves better. So they improve a lot in, in uh, the communication realm, the social realm, emotional intelligence realm. They really make progress. So there's a lot of difference. Mm. And can you, can you say a little bit more about the clients who may have had a diagnosis for 15 years? What are, what are some of the challenges that they might present with? What I see is that they, they, they really get to know themselves better and they have kind of a, like a, they, they want to explore themselves more and, and make a lot of changes in their lives because their whole lives they've been masking and they've been just doing whatever. And then they enter a process that they want to change their career. They want to change their relationship. They really want to do now, now that they discovered themselves and worked on really getting to know who they are. So you see, like they're making steps there to pursue, you know, their own things. And mm. they, they learn to set boundaries much better. Because if you are not diagnosed, then there's a lot of struggle with boundaries and that's that's a lot of blurred. So people further ahead, they 
they really know what their boundaries are, they can take better care of themselves. And yeah, that's that's a completely different picture then. Mm. Something I've noticed with people who may have got a diagnosis as a child is sometimes they get the diagnosis, but then they will ignore it. They will say, this is not a part of my identity. It's, and it's akin to, let's say, you're a woman, which you are, and as I know. <laughs> <laughs> and for whatever reason, you decide that I'm not going to identify as woman. I'm not going to identify as anything. And if someone calls me a woman, I'm going to get upset. And because that's not part of my identity. And so I've noticed that behavior in people who've had a diagnosis for a long time. And then I've noticed the, the polar opposite where um, people who have had a diagnosis for 15 or more years are real champions and advocates in the industry. And I'm thinking of uh, one colleague and she refuses to have a filter. She, she, her policy is she will never mask. She will never filter. She says exactly what she's thinking. And she's always right. And she doesn't care about other people's feelings. She just wants the truth. And I, I find I find her refreshing, uh, mm. but neurotypical people don't always uh, uh, appreciate her, her forthrightness. So let me just recap some of the things that you said about newly diagnosed people. So they tend to, and I'm just looking at my notes because I was doing a little typey-typey white. <laughs> so you were saying that, that newly diagnosed people, they tend to uh, deal with acceptance. Uh, which is accepting themselves like, wow, I'm autistic. How can I accept that? And then they go through a, a grief cycle um, where they're, they've had an identity or a picture or a perception of themselves, and now it's different. And so there's the, the death of the old self and this emergence, this struggle of the new self that they, because they can only keep going forward. And then there's some depression with that. And they tend to try to identify, well, what's masking? What's not masking? What? And part of that conversation is also the deconstruction of ableism. Because sometimes they have this map of certain behaviors that are very neuro neurotypical. And they might make themselves wrong for not being able to be their true self, not being able to be fully self-expressed. So, so that's... I, I realize that that is a challenge and it's also exciting. Definitely, yeah, you, you captured that very well. You know, it's nice to hear back a summary of what I actually said that helps me, you know, to, to hear back my own words and, and, you know, verify like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so it's a lot of things that are involved in that, that change process. And I like how you put it like, yeah, there's the identity. It's very important, like you said, People that get newly diagnosed, they first deny it. That's also part of the grief process. The, the Kubler-Ross cycles of grief, the first step is denial. Mm. And I like I experienced it myself. Like when my therapist told me, I was like, nope, that's not me. Denial. <laughs> so yeah, it's very relatable uh, what you said. And, and also the moving from the masking to suddenly like all masks off and that that lady that you know that's just un unfiltered and that's where the, the 
the, the collision happens between neurotypical and neurodivergent because we live in a filtered world and everyone adapts. And when you just speak your truth, people cannot handle it. So that's why a lot of times people with autism get bullied because they just speak the truth. They, they are unfiltered. Yeah, I've, I've, for a long time, I've been an advocate of a neurodivergent state or a neurodivergent community. There are pros and cons of, of that, obviously. And uh, I, I really enjoy the, I, en I enjoy the nuances and the possibility of creating something like that since it's never been done before. There's this, there's this argument out there where people are saying there's an increase of autistic diagnoses. So more people are showing up as, as, as autistic. And just from math, if we look at st statistics, there are more human beings on the planet. And also as science improves, we're able, our, our diagnostic process is getting better. So it's not as if there are more people showing up with autism. It's that there's nothing in the air. There's a, that's like saying, oh, there's, there's more men who are being born. Or there's more women who are being born. No, I, we've always been here. It's just now we have a, a name for it. Now we are able to conceptualize it and, and categorize it. And when we look at the necessity of mm -hmm. autism in human tapestry, our future is, is very, very bright. And this is our, our first time having a conversation, our first podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm tickled, as you can see. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have had this opportunity to connect with you. And I'm really looking forward to our conversations in the future. And with that, I'd like to give you the closing word. Well, thanks a lot uh, for inviting me. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was like, it went so fast. I was like, is it finished already? So that's a good sign, you know, like I noticed like these topics are close to both our hearts and there's so much material we could discuss about. So I really loved it. And I would like to like pick up on where we left off uh, some other time so we can explore uh, more because there's there's a whole world of, of neurodiversity and so many more things we can uh, Yes. I've been to so thank you yes, for the opportunity. We, I really enjoyed we it. We just we just put our pinky in the water this time. And exactly. Maybe next maybe next mm -hmm. time we can we can jump in really deep. Uh, I will be putting your contact information at the bottom of the video so that if people who want to get in touch with you or have a conversation with you or they want to explore the therapy options mm -hmm. for neurodiversity that they'd be able to get in getting contact with you. And in saying that, I just want to share with our audience that just because you're neurodivergent or autistic or whatever your flavor is, it does not mean that there's something wrong with you. It also doesn't mean that you need therapy. Therapy is really useful for trauma, for reconciling identity type things and attachment issues and blah, 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 blah. Being autistic does not mean that something is wrong with you. That's, I, I just want to make sure that, that our audience understands that. Contact a, a therapist and make sure that they're culturally competent and make sure that they have a practice that is neurodivergent informed. All right, let's wrap it up for today, guys. Thank you for listening and don't forget to hit the follow button.